Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the Gilded Age and Progressive Era, a podcast about the United States and the world in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. I'm your host, Michael Patrick Cullinane. You've made it to episode five, and today we're asking why we call the period Gilded and Progressive. In 1873, Mark Twain and Dudley Warner wrote the book The Gilded Age, A Tale of Today, which is a satire of the nouveau riche, political corruption, as well as immigration and assimilation. Only later did historians like Lewis Mumford and Van Wyck Brooks take up the term gilded to describe the late 19th century as excessively materialistic, greedy, and morally corrupt. The period stood in contrast to the progressive movements they observed in the early 20th century, even though these progressives had begun long before the 20th century. It's safe to say that there is plenty of disagreement about what we should call this period of American history or whether it needs a name at all. The 1870s to 1920s have been called many things other than gilded or progressive. Mumford called it the brown decades, which is perhaps the gloomiest of descriptions. Historian Richard Hofstadter called it the age of reform, and his mid-century colleague Robert Wiebe called it the search for order. American Studies founder Vernon Parrington called it a huge barbecue, or as H. Wayne Morgan read it, the feast of material plenty. Other scholars like Alan Trachenberg called it the incorporation of America, and Rebecca Edwards agreed that it should be called the age of incorporation to mark the scale of the period's enterprises. More recently, historians have tethered the Gilded Age to Reconstruction, perhaps most notably Jackson Lears, who considers it a psychological rebirth of the nation after the Civil War. Nancy Cohen called it the reconstruction of American liberalism. There are naturally omissions and occlusions with all of these varieties. How can we call it the age of reform when reform happens all the time? How can we focus on progress and evolution when that trajectory was not experienced by everyone or even the majority of Americans? Where is the recognition of the wider world and global trends of the time? And if we focus squarely on business and corporate growth, do we seek a, a usable past that, past that helps us fit with the current context? Where in these monikers can we find women minorities, immigrants, Native Americans, children, environmental history, or the many other perspectives that the historical record so regularly diminishes? Have we left out histories of agriculture, of industry, or politics and populism? Or have we spent too much time on these or other aspects of the past? And if the Civil War is so important, 
Does such a lens mute postbellum experiences as secondary? This is an existential minefield for those of us that study the period, and today we'll examine the terminology we use to define our field of study and ask if it's fit for purpose. And I'm joined today by two leading experts, and I can say this with confidence because they have literally written the book or edited the book called A Companion to the Gilded Age and Progressive Era. Today I'm joined by Professor of History at Santa Clara University, Nancy Unger, and Professor Christopher McKnight-Nichols, the Director of the Center for the Humanities at Oregon State University. Each are distinguished scholars. Professor Unger has written extensively on women and progressive leaders, Bob and Belle La Follette. Uh, Professor Nichols is an expert on American foreign relations and has already joined me to talk about the 1918 influenza. But along with their astonishing solo work, there is this collaboration that they've worked on as editors. It's a remarkable book called A Companion to the Gilded Age and Progressive Era, and it includes some 20 chapters on all aspects of the period. You both are very welcome to the show. Thanks for coming. Let's do it. Sounds good. And Mike, we uh, there was a lot of call in the society during COVID for some kind of content. What can we do? People are really looking for community. They're looking for this, this type of thing. And we sponsored two events, two book events that were very well attended. Um, so I, I think that this is this is going to tap into, it's not like, oh my God, another thing. It's like, yes, we are, we're looking for this kind of community. Ah, thanks so much, Nancy. And uh, the Society is the Society for Historians of the Gilded Age and Progressive Era. That Gilded Age bit came from Mark Twain. And we start off with Twain and Dudley Warner and their book, The Gilded Age, as, uh, as a starting point for the conversation. We're pretty quick to dismiss the Twain and Warner Gilded Age book, you know, uh, helping to give rise to that nomenclature. But corruption was a really central way that people experienced that era and the gilding of things in the way that they intended it. Um, and also the kind of optimism and speculative like sort of future of democracy in that book, which otherwise is ponderous and isn't particularly good, right, it, it, which is why we kind of reject it in some ways, actually does get at what then gets you to the progressive era, that kind of faith in progress, um, that, that there's something really to redeem, that corruption isn't endemic in American democracy, but rather a kind of original sin even, like slavery, that, that you can push beyond, presumably or hopefully through meaningful reform. So the gilding there can do a lot of work, metaphorically, historically. It's interesting to me, progressive era is the one that my students have trouble with. The gilded age concept is one they can get pretty quickly. But progressive, what does that mean? I mean, it's so broad. It, it's so, I mean, it's problematic in, in its own ways. Um, I've for years taught a seminar on the progressive era and um, an upper division course. And I finally have had to change um, uh, their names. I now call my um, seminar, uh, The Making of Modern America, 1877 to 1920. And the upper division to course, uh, course is US Turmoil and Reform, 1887 to 1920. Because, you know, progressive era, just, you know, what does that mean unless you have some sense of this? It, it doesn't, does, you know, it can mean anything for any period. I mean, of course, those things I just said, turmoil and reform can go for any period as well, which is why you have to put the dates in, which of course becomes problematic in its own way. So that's something that I really wanted to start off by asking both of you. That's the number one question that I have on my mind. If we put aside for the, a moment the, the, uh, the name, and I just ask you, when is the Gilded Age and Progressive Era? And is it two periods of time or is it one long period of time? Chris, you want to you take this one first? I, I have strong thoughts on this. Go, go, go ahead. 
Oh, well, then I want you to go first. If you've got strong thoughts, please. I mean, I, I think that it is frustrating to me that for so long it was perceived as two periods and it's and it's got this confusing name because for me it is one long period and it's not like there's the gilded age followed by the progressive era it's like this double helix that's all it's always responding to each other the two the two you know aspects of this are always in in conversation or resistance or whatever so for me there's no question that it is just one long period and, and i think wouldn't you two say that that's pretty much the consensus? Or- I, I would say that it is generally, and it's a question of either where you put the boundaries on that or um, uh, when you make the switch from kind of reform impulses that precede formal progressivism uh, to pro- progressive reformers uh, and their reform aims in all the multiple progressivisms and rather than one singular progressivism, which is certainly the consensus, no one is searching for the real or authentic progressives or progressivism as the old historiography did, um, which had plenty of merits, uh, don't get me wrong there, but um, it's much more on the plural and therefore fits nicely with your one long era kind of sensibility. Uh, you know, I think policing the boundaries of historical eras is really a fool's errand. You know, I mean, is it 1860 in the Civil War? That's what Heather Cox Richardson is suggesting in her chapter in our book. You know, reconstructing the Gilded Age and Progressive Era really goes 1860 to what, 1920? So post World War One. You know, that seems fine to me. I, I'm willing to endorse that, but I could also, you know, go with the end of Reconstruction uh, or somewhere in the midst of Reconstruction. I, again, you know, um, the the choice there is interesting. What I think as a historian, the choice there is interesting because it helps us get at the themes and trends, right? So if it, Nancy, you're right. If it's one era, then what? when do we want to start? When's our springboard? And what are the core themes and arguments we want to have spring from that? Is it disillusion, destruction, you know, and the civil war? Is it the reconstitution and re- reconstructing the nation state that came after? Is it sometime after that, the failures of reconstruction? So kind of lost promise first of reconstruction, then lost promise of progressivism fundamentally by the end of that period. The the themes you choose, this gets at your point about utility, Nancy, the themes that you choose then dictate the sum of the periodization. But I think an arbitrary boundary between a Gilded Age and progressive era makes no sense to me. Yeah, I, I agree with that entirely. And I think what, we, we really have to plug that chapter in your book, uh, um, Heather Cox Richardson's chapter about reconstituting the Gilded Age and Progressive Era because she has a couple of really nice turns of phrases around what, what we as historians do as lumpers or splitters. You know, do we lump periods together? Do we, do we split them up? But also then she kind of finishes with, do we simply just drop the Gilded Age bit? I mean, how do you feel about that? Just taking the Gilded Age out of the Gilded Age and Progressive Era? I, I, I'm not a fan. Um, because like I said, first of all, that's a concept that like it or hate it, people understand. And I think it does begin the conversations that we want to have. And if we don't have that, if we have, what is it, you know, uh, the, oh yeah, reconstruction and the progressive era is, is what, is the, is what she's hoping that this, that this will, will become. And, um, that, I don't know, that, that, that just doesn't, that doesn't fly for me again, because the progressive era is so, um, you know, can mean anything. I, I, I think we need that Gilded Age in there to, to anchor it. I, I've never seen it as problematic. Um, and so for, for me, what was interesting about her essay was, was more starting in Reconstruction. 
And, and for me, that just makes too long a period. And I know that we do put in these artificial sort of, you know, timeframes and so forth. But ultimately, you know, if, if, if otherwise you just have, have chaos. And I think when you're presenting this and acknowledging that these are sort of artificial limits, um, you have to start somewhere. Um, this is one of the things that I really love about teaching this period is we spend, you know, or even when I'm writing about it, you, you always have to kind of start with by defining your terms. Um, and I think that's a healthy and worthwhile uh, conversation. So I'm with you, Chris. I mean, I don't have any big opposition to any of this stuff, but but I do think that um, the name that she's given for me is is too generic, and the period is so broad um, that um, and certainly there are themes that go across. You can say that about any period in American history, you know, th throughout American history. So anyway, that, that that's my original, that's my uh, uh, first sort of thought on this. Yeah, and I think I'll just add, you know, on the Gilded Age piece and the Gilded element, um, one of the things that people were talking about in this recent uh, exchange on Twitter and one of the directions that scholarship has been headed for at least a decade is, you know, history of capitalism. Um, and, you know, whether or not, you know, Twain and Warner and their Gilded Age book intended to critique sort of the broader parameters of capitalism or more narrowly speculation, corruption and political systems, we can pull that out of using the term Gilded, right? So that's what the metaphor can help us do in the best sort of American studies or literary studies sense. Um, and, and I think that's useful. So I would, I'd like to keep Gilded. I mean, even if it's a subhead rather than the, than the topical nomenclature, I'd like to keep Gilded in there because it gets to some really core and important themes of the era. And if you want to go back to Heather's piece, which is great, you know, what are some of the failures of Reconstruction? Well, all of the arguably, you know, corruption-related dimensions of Southern politics that disenfranchise African-Americans um, are, are in some ways about who's gilding what and then who's benefiting from the graft, right? Um, and, and you see that in the North too, let's not, you know, uh, so you could think about ballot stuffing, uh, Tammany, et cetera. We could go down a whole long list of these sort of gilded dimensions of the era that I think really get at fundamental questions. This gets to your core point, Nancy, and I think while we're talking about this, Mike, the world we live in today, right? That that corruption graph, the one percent, you know, an imperfect at best democracy, a fatally flawed one at worst, right? That is very much in there with the gilded. You know, when you get below what's gilded, what what's in there? Rot, you know, uh, you know, decomposition, right? Something pretty nasty is under that gilded um, sphere or cover or whatever. I, I think that's great because I think what um, what. Heather's article really centers on is the idea of citizenship. And you can see that in democracy. You can see it in the, the problems that we're facing today with corruption or even Tammany back then. But what I didn't think it got at was some of the more socio-cultural events that happened in the Gilded Age that we think so much about. I know I teach about the Bradley Martin Ball when I want to talk about the Gilded Age and about how excess kind of displays itself in that period in a way that it might in, in other periods. But, but just the idea of citizenship being the focal point seems to distract from maybe capitalism or maybe some of these other socio-cultural factors like the rise of consumerism, the sexual revolution that's happening and the, uh, and the development of, 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 a, of a global America. And this is where I wanted to you know, propose something uh, not that controversial, but maybe more along lines that I'm more familiar with, which is foreign policy. And maybe we could talk more about foreign policy, because one of the things that happens here is a, the globalizing of America, or as uh, Frank Ninkovich said, global dawn. And I know you've talked about in your own writing, uh, uh, Chris, um, 
Paul Kramer has got a definition of empire as asymmetrical power dynamics that, um, that I think is really useful because it creates new spatial orders like the railroads did, uh, new interpersonal relationships, new hierarchies of power and new modes of exploitation that weren't there before the Gilded Age. And I think that's something that might, we might entertain more in the dialogue about the Gilded Age is that there's this global aspect to it and there's a, there's a, a foreign policy aspect to it perhaps. Absolutely. Yeah. I think one of the things that Nancy and I tried to do in putting together our Gilded Age uh, book uh, was to emphasize that those international dimensions more than a lot of other kind of state of the field projects have done. So we have a great chapter by Ian Terrell, among others, and he talks about those circuits of connection. He's talked about this in his other work to networks and circuits in this era uh, and how they, they you know, uh, work at, at, at multiple levels. So there's institutional circuits and connections and conferences. You can think about that with missionaries. There's individuals going out in the world, European tours or young progressive reformers. I mean, I, when I first started studying this, I was just struck by how many people studied in Germany and they got their ideas from European, you know, social Democrats. I mean, the progressives of the U.S. were, at, you know, Dan Rogers-esque, like absolutely invested in Atlantic crossings and really more global dimensions too. Atlantic doesn't give it do justice because there's folks in the Pacific, there's people in Africa, right? Americans are out there in the world uh, in the latter half of the 19th century in really profound and important ways, um, in ways that we really miss when we simplify down to that, at least that the language of just Gilded Age and Progressive Era, because the international dimensions are so critically important. I mean, we could spend our whole the whole podcast talking about those. Um, you know, and I think, I, I don't know to what extent Nancy would want to talk about this, but if you think about conservation and environmental movements, they're both continental in nature and thinking about, you know, limited resources, but also have this global scope, which I don't know that we've really reckoned with, because we're in the midst of another kind of global moment of crisis. Uh, it wasn't the same crisis in the late 19th century, but I'm not sure if, if that's a direction you'd want to go and thinking about this, Nancy. Well, I, 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 I'm still uh, processing what, what you were just, just talking about. And I think that um, I, I wrote a little piece uh, about uh, Bob LaFollette going to Europe in 1923. And when he's on the ship going over there, he's one of, I think, five or six senators um, you know, because they're all, you know, going to, you know, he says, you know, I went to learn and so forth. So I guess my point, um, and this may seem a little, uh, maybe I'm trying too hard, but I see this very squarely in this notion of Gilded Age. Um, on the one hand, we have, oh, look, all these Americans are going all these places, you say, as missionaries, you know, doing all these different things, politicians and so on. Um, but e even there, it's like, well, you know, I, if you scratch off that gold surface, what, what lurks underneath? What are the other meanings this could possibly have? So to me, this, this I mean, I agree that for way too long, Gilded Age and Progressive Era uh, was sort of presented and taught primarily as sort of this domestic movement, and then World War I comes along and ends it. And there might be a little bit about what, oh, what happened in Mexico with Wilson or, you know, a few other Latin American things and so forth, um, but, uh, but not, you know, but not a great deal. And I think we've certainly gone way beyond that. But to get back to our original question, I, I don't think that that's antithetical. I don't think that excludes this notion of Gilded Age. I think it, it, it's another reason for me why it, it works as a title. Now, I think that would work as a title in virtually any period. Um, but since we have sort of cornered the market on it, I, I'm happy to, to keep it that way. I'm glad too, because the podcast obviously bears the name and it's going to save me some serious rebranding. Um, <laughs> but um, I think your point about it being parochial 
is that something that was past tense and or is it something that we can avoid because if we think about other places too there's france has their belle epoque um you know the the the, the japanese history books kind of tend to go by imperial uh generations uh, there's other places edwardian you can think of or the french have fin de siècle i mean is this a natural tendency a parochial tendency to think of you know your history in these terms yeah, it probably is. I think, you know, just let's just focus on our era for one moment more. It's so uh, maybe the whole rest of the podcast. Uh, something fundamentally different to my mind as a historian was going on in the late 19th and early 20th century. That's why I'm so attracted to the period. And you find that in quotes at every level of society. You find that in people's memoirs. You find it in presidents and secretaries of states. Um, and you find that across nation states too. So what was going on? Well, you know, you know, modernization, urbanization, uh, right? Um, industrialization. You know, the U.S. goes, in 1880, the census says the U.S. is majority rural. In 1920, the U.S. is majority urban, right? So the, the those patterns, those transformations are enormous. And then, you know, Henry George famously says, you know, it's like the era of haves and have nots in poverty and progress or progress and poverty rather. Um, and, you know, so, uh, and you see that in lots of other societies trying to work out those insoluble questions about the transformation to become modern, which, which Nancy's retitled her class around, I think is why it's attractive to us in some ways and why we're, we seek a kind of language to describe or demarcate the era because it, it is demonstrably different in the experience of people living through it and in the patterns we can discern from it, right? Something has changed in, in 1869 when people are rushing across the U.S. to complete a transcontinental railroad, that changes things, you know? In the late 1870s, when Edison is patenting light bulbs, I mean, think about what's possible after you have light bulbs. I mean, it's just transformative of everything in society. And then, you know, coming to cities and all the squalor and all the, as bad as cities are, they're super attractive to human beings. And, and then reformers have to figure out, well, how do you make it more attractive? How do you build parks? How do you make it health, healthy and safe? And all that stuff, right? We can go on and on with this, but something fundamentally different is going on in that era, which I think is why a lot of the language you were just describing talks about broadly that period. Yeah, and, and just, just to support what you're saying, I was uh, rereading uh, Rebecca Edwards' essay, Politics, Social Movements, and the Periodization of U.S. History. Um, and she says, well, you know, we can take it uh, all the way up to, to 1929, uh, the Gilded Age and Progressive Era. And she says, oh, in this way, we could include like, you know, Bob LaFollette's independent bid for the presidency in 1924. Well, I'm all about Bob LaFollette all the time, but even I can't go that far. It's done. That, that unique period that you're talking about, Chris, even though it's hard for us to really you know, but for, for me, no, 24 does not, uh, does not do it. For me, this is going to uh, pretty much end with, with World War I because it's the end of that sort of, um, oh, we're going to make the world safe for democracy, that kind of, you know, idealism and, and so forth. So um, um, I, I'm getting us a little far, far afield here, but I did want to support this notion that, yes, I don't think it's just, um, well, you know, any any years will do and sort of any name will do. It is a discrete, important period. And that's why those of us who have devoted our lives to studying it have done so, because it's not just thought, well, it's sort of part of a continuum. No, it's this unique thing. I think you're exactly right about that. I buy that. And I think your point of Rebecca is actually great. If you think about her work uh, broadly, she has this great book, New Spirits, which I've taught with and worked really well. And that demarcates the New Spirits era broadly uh, as 1865 to 1905. 
Mm -hmm. um, so you can see us all trying to slice this and track the patterns, right? Make some slightly different choices about when and where they end and begin. But I guess I would argue um, that those slight moments of difference actually illuminate how much similarity we have here. Now, maybe it's groupthink, uh, but maybe it is coming out of the historical record and the kind of questions that we historians are asking. Yeah. If I can go back to 1920, though, Nancy, I have to agree with you entirely, because for me, that election in 1920, after uh, the First World War, for me, is just the, the, the end of that internationalist attitude uh, that the world has. So I, again, maybe I'm thinking with that foreign policy uh, uh, experience, but, you know, Warren Harding was the least like Theodore Roosevelt out of any of the Republicans that were running. And Hey, that's it for the League of Nations. And for me, everything changes after that. I mean, even Harding's idea of normalcy seems like an end to that to that period. And I know, Chris, you've written extensively about, you know, isolationism and, uh, you know, the internationalist underpinnings of all that, actually. But in some ways, it's still isolationist to, to a degree. And I know that opens up a lot of conversations in uh, diplomatic, among diplomatic historians who say, well, isolation isn't a thing. And some say it is and in veiled guises and whatnot. But um, it, it does say a lot about, I think, where the fault lines are in the things that we're discussing and the conversations that we're having with each other. Um, but it has, I think, also importance for those people that don't get into the nitty gritty conversations about the, you know, the, the words and the, and the fault lines. How can we reach out to those people that are maybe more uh, the general public, the, you know, those ones that are going to pick up a, a trade book about the Gilded Age and Progressive Era? What can we say to them about why this why these, this period matters as a distinct one? Well, um, to me, I mean, I mean, we're all historians. And for me, you know, I'm a historian because why would you reinvent the wheel? If there's a problem today, you want to look to the past um, to say, okay, what is it similar? What worked then? What didn't work? Why? Um, you know, you, as I say, you don't have to reinvent the wheel every time. History is not a intellectual masturbation, it's actually a very useful tool um, for dealing with the realities of, of, of the present day. So for me, one of the things that is just, um, I mean, this is just a, a, a cliche, but I do believe there are so many um, echoes today of the past, you know, looking at, you know, the industrial statesman versus robber baron argument. We can have that today. We used to have it about, um, you know, John D. Rockefeller and J.P. Morgan. You can have it today about Jeff Bezos and, and um, Bill Gates. I mean, uh, is um, Starbucks, is this a, a great and wonderful thing that we can get our coffee this way? Or is this terrible because it's pushing out the mod? I mean, there are so many um, uh, things that, that um, to me, it's just uh, such, you know, Yes, it's overwhelming to live in 2021 and look at these overwhelming problems and issues until you look back and say, oh, here's a generation that had in many ways similar types of overwhelming problems. How did they handle this? How did they look at it? What reforms did they try to institute? What worked? What didn't work? I mean, to me, this is, um, you know, this this is why wouldn't you be doing this? It's uh, um, I, I'm very happy The Washington Post has this. Um, uh, made by history, and Chris, I believe you're one of the one of the um, co-editors of that. And I think it's a wonderful way to introduce people into thinking about learning how the past can really illuminate uh, the present. And the period that we all agree actually existed, this Gilded Age and Progressive Era, I think is particularly valuable today. So, I mean, that that's my thought. I can. 
completely buy everything you just said. I, I co-sign it. Yes, I agree, Nancy. You know, um, I guess I, I'll tackle slightly the beginning of your question, Mike, since Nancy's done such a good job about why we should study the period, which is about that rupture in 1920 and 1919. You know, so um, uh, Maureen Flanagan has a book on progressivism, and she talks about that the destination was progressive society and the roads and the travelers were diverse, is sort of how she puts it in the preface of the introduction. And um, by 1919, 1920, you've had so many changes. So you think about income tax, which had been debated and pushed around in American politics since the origins, right? And shifting from kind of vice taxation and tariffs to income taxation is enormous. Direct election of senators is maybe one of the most transformation things that transformational things we don't ever think about in, in our current era. Uh, you know, that this is all happening there in the late, you know, progressive era before 1919, before 1920, and then women are get the vote. Um, and then you don't see much more of the kinds of reform of the kinds of reform ethos and rhetorics, you do see some, right? And so historians like to say, you know, progressivism doesn't all end after 1920, and progressive reform does endure. You've got Bob LaFollette, who Nancy's written brilliantly about, you know, and others on the scene. You've still got Eugene Debs kicking around the Socialist Party, but uh, there's none of the same, you know, really enormous impulse. A lot of the achievements have happened there, especially sort of at an apex in the 1910s. Then you get the war. And one thing we didn't used to think as much about, and then you get the flu pandemic, right? And 675,000 Americans die, many more injured or, or uh, have irreparable lung damage. And so the 20s, it shouldn't surprise us. The US is pulling back and things are changing in domestic and foreign policy. It shouldn't surprise us coming out of all of that, that there've been some, you know, if, if the destination was a kind of progressive society, kind of paraphrasing from Maureen Flanagan, um, then enough of that has been achieved uh, that some people are willing to rest in their laurels and others wanna co-opt that or actually push back against that, right? And so you see some of the Republican normalcy policies of the 20s as, you know, Coolidge, right? The business of America is business. Uh, that's, that's, that is also antithetical to some of the ways in which, uh, and I'm not even talking about sort of serious reformers, you know, uh, on the far left, but some of the kind of moderates of the TR and his first two administrations would not have wanted that, that orientation in the 20s, right? So, um, so you see some real pushback in that era. And I think that's also illuminating back to Nancy's point. Why do we study this? You might say the bookend to the progressive era is also really worth studying the rise of inequality, racial injustice, the rise of the Klan, or you know, new forms of it, right? This, this is also the world we live in today in this pandemic. Um, and so whatever the achievements were that came before, uh, that pushback was incredibly successful and normalized in many ways. And if it weren't for the depression, um, who's to say that, that that wouldn't have become an even more dominant way of thinking about organizing American society, a kind of xenophobic, uh, inward looking um, kind of corporate capitalism with a with a 1% that's you know, incredibly well off and running things, a kind of oligarchic system that, that many critics today see a borning or already see in full, full you know, I don't know, uh, efflorescence. <laughs> I think we're getting somewhere now. I think this is really interesting. Uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg once said that the emblem of the United States should be a pendulum. And that might help us with the idea of periodization somewhat too, because you're right, you have this swing in 1920 in some ways, maybe not in all ways, as we've said, maybe other aspects of society and culture, you know, swung at a later stage or in a different uh, trajectory, but we do have this swing uh, that 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 leaves us with a with a different a different society. I mean, prohibition is one way you can just think for the average person living in 1920. It was just markedly different to what it would have been like beforehand. Um, so yeah, I think there's a, a lot of different ways, and I think we are getting somewhere with this, which is great because that's that's the big hope. Um, 
I guess the, the, the thing that I was wondering most of is, is what, what we're saying here is that this doesn't have to be a zero sum pursuit. And this goes back to what uh, the journalism professor Richard John was uh, writing um, in, in, on Twitter, but also in the journal, the Gilded Age and Progressive Era Journal. Um, he says that it's the only period that is unambiguously pejorative. But I, I suppose, can, I, what I wonder is he getting at is can the period be both gilded and progressive uh, at, at the same time? you know, plutocratic and populist, corrupt and crusading. That's probably truer to life, isn't it? Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't see how those are in, in any way mutually exclusive. I mean, as I said, the, the double helix um, image is what works best for me, that we have these, you know, these Gilded Age excesses. We have uh, progressive reformers trying to, res uh, to to remedy those. We see the, 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 there's pushback, the pushback that, you know, that Chris is talking about that is happening throughout the era, of course, not just, you know, not just at, at the end. So I, I, I see that, um, uh, yeah, that, that's one of the reasons why as sort of cumbersome and clumsy as that title is, for me, it does work because it is very clear that both of those things are going on. And we haven't talked about this, and I know it doesn't matter that much, but one of the big problems. So I was surprised to read um, in Heather Cox Richards' essay, I'd forgotten this, that she said that when the Society for Historians of the Gilded Age and Progressive Era were forming the society in, in 1988, only 49 out of 97 supported the title of the Gilded Age and Progressive Era. And they had other options. Historians of the early modern era, well, early modern, what, what does that mean to most, uh, to most people? Um, although that's the term that I actually have to use because that's what gets, you know, making of America, that, you know, that time of thing. Emerging, uh, historians of emerging modern America. Um, and both of them, the span was 1865 to 1917. So um, one of my problems problems with um, uh, the Society for Historians of Gilded Age Progressive Era, the acronym is SHAPE, which always makes me sound like I'm drunk. Um, when, when, you know, and I'm president of this organization. What am the president of SHAPE? Um, I wish we'd come up with something that just had a better, a better acronym. But, um, but in any event, I'm, 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 I'm getting kind of out into the weeds here. But I, I don't think it's at all problematic that, um, that these two um, uh, things in tension are very much part of the title. I think that that's very fitting. Yeah, with, and with all due respect to Richard John, I don't think it's unambiguously pejorative at all. I mean, why I'm attracted to the era is the idealism, the optimism, some of the transcendent figures from every background and across the political spectrum, from grassroots folks to the highest politicians, you know, um, literary figures, philosophers. I mean, you know, it's such a vibrant period. Now, I know historians say that all say that about their eras, right, to some extent, that there's something we all find that, that gives us some hope. Otherwise, we'd just be these despair Despair, you know, despairing scholars in our monastic cells. But, you know, um, so for me, it's definitely not unambiguously pejorative. And, you know, so many people center their analysis. Uh, Richardson does. Um, Robert Johnston has a great essay, I think one of the most read ones in the Journal of the Gilded Age and Progressive Era on redemocratizing the era. And his several big historiographic essays are all about kind of the democratic politics in the era. Um, you know, and, and sort of centering on questions of democracy. But within that, it's about these idealistic figures who want to make American democracy better and those who are kind of regressive or atavistic figures who want to make it yeah, arguably worse, different, go back to white la male landowners kind of vision of, of American democracy. And, you know, I, so I see that as this, the essential kind of, if it's a pendulum in this essential set of contestations in American society and politics, and maybe in, in lots of other societies too, but just locating on the United States, 
that that is really has moment high high and low moments which are fascinating and wonderful and certainly not uh, unambiguously pejorative in my opinion. I mean, I think you can find some of the most inspiring figures in U.S. history in this era. I mean, Ida B. Wells, Barnett. You know, when I remember learning about her when I first got to college, and I was like, oh my God, how did I not know about this pioneering woman? You know, figuring out lynching. You know, under constantly under death threats. Uh, you know, I mean, wow, amazing. You know, Du Bois. We know about William James, arguably the greatest American philosopher. You know. You know, from varieties of religious experience to pragmatism, like deeply inflects how I think about things. You know, I mean, just and on and on. We could go through so many of these figures, right? But I mean, I've written a lot about Jane Addams and Emily Balch. I mean, if these figures don't get you inspired by trying to end world wars, I don't know what will, right? I mean, wow, right? I have to, I just have to interject quickly. Belle LaFollette at one point said, What custom could be more barbarous than a 10 course dinner? And, you know, just this whole notion of, of how, you know, so many women were expected to spend their time. And I, I mean, I think that should be cross-stitched on, you know, I don't know, someplace. Um, uh, I just thought it was brilliant. So um, I think all three of us can come up, as, as Chris says, with all of these different, you know, inspiring people and so forth. And I think that... Um, I remember when when my La Follette biography first came out, a young man wrote to me from the University of Wisconsin and said, um, I mean, this book came out in 2000. He said, you know, he was so depressed about the world and how things were going. He said he just pulled it off the shelf, sat down in the library, read it in one sitting. And he said, I came out with my moral gas tank on full because it showed me that people can inspire others. They can make positive change. I mean, that I, I think that this a period that is really able to do that, and, and as Chris says, probably all periods have aspects of that, but ours is just, there's a lot of low-hanging fruit there because it's, 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 so anyway, I'm sorry to interrupt, but Michael, you were going to say something. No, I was I was actually going to I was going to actually ask you about La Follette because uh, and, and both Bell and Bob, because they're complex characters. And I think getting to what Chris is saying about the complexities of the age, you can see this in people like Du Bois, in Twain, in the La Follettes and in Theodore Roosevelt, you know, the, the, the folks that we're writing about. And that part of the history, like you say, yes, you can pick out characters from the past. And, you know, we all have colleagues that work on early modern Britain or Imperial Japan, and they, they have their interesting characters too. But they also say, this is my distinct, you know, turf. This is my area that I'm, I'm milling. And, uh, you know, it, it's really unique and important. And this is why. And I think that's, we're sort of setting out our stall in the same way, which is why I think we're in agreement that the Gilded Age and Progressive Era has to stay as the moniker, the, the, the moniker right? I mean, that's, that's it. Um, I, I, like I said, I changed the titles of my of my classes because my students were not getting this. It's more of an inside title, I think, among historians. And then it, it, it like I say, I kind of like it because then I have to explain you know, what these terms mean and why. That is my only concern about it. I mean, if you say, I'm gonna teach a course on the uh, revolutionary period in American history, everybody knows what you mean, even though this is not revolutionary for, enslaved African-Americans, for Native Americans, for women who can't vote, blah, blah. I mean, it's got all kinds of problems, but that, that title works. So in some ways, I don't think this title is any more problematic than any other title that is given. If you start picking apart, you know, the triumph of Jacksonian democracy, well, again, for who? For Native Americans, for women? Um, so, you know, if you're gonna have a little short, you know, title, it's gonna be problematic no matter what. And I think in some ways, ours is a little bit more problematic in some aspects of it. In other ways, I like that because it, it gets you going on the, you know, the whole complexity of the period from the get-go. 
yeah, I think I think that's that's for me. That's the that's the selling point is that it's metaphoric. And even going back to what we were saying about it being pejorative, actually, you know, gilding still has a, a very shiny and uh, and rich exterior. And so, you know, it, it has that element of gold, even if it's not the real thing. So as a metaphor, I think it works really well. Yeah, I mean, I think that fits, you know, uh, everything that we're saying does seem to um, connect to uh, that, er the early sort of the 1870s moment, and that's an 1873 book, the Warner and Twain book, uh, to, to think about, you know, corruption, speculation, uh, haves and have nots, uh, the kinds of reorganization of, of capitalism in the US, the reorganization of social lives, what it mean, means to work, how to identify as an individual within a family unit, right? What larger communities were doing, that Robert Wiebe used to talk about island communities and the dissolution of island communities, that there were once communities that just sat out there, say, in the, the real and imagined heartland of the US. And then those island communities get punctured by traveling to cities and different kinds of connections, but also by modern technology. So you can, by the end of the period, you can connect by phone, right? I think that fit, a lot of those things fit there really neatly. You know, I mean, I think the challenge for us, if you, if you take the 30,000 foot view is the Gilded Age and Progressive Era seem like um, flyover country between a really important war and another really important war. Uh, and then it, the latter one is a question of emphasis. Is it World War I or World War II? And World War I is often less well known uh, certainly for Americans, right? Uh, who the, the, So it's interesting to me, one of the things we haven't quite picked on is how many people end the Gilded Age of Progressive Era in 1917 and, uh, and, and how many go to 1920 or a little bit later, right? I mean, some are pushing it to 29. I don't think that that quite works. But um, if you want, I, from, my, from my view, you, you need to get World War I in there um, to it's kind of culminate that moment. And in part because of the intellectuals I've studied from that period. So lots of the progressive reformers who are arguing about those 1870s kinds of questions about, you know, what does a modern industrial society have, uh, have at stake in citizenship questions in the world, in uh, reconstructing corporate capitalism um, and moderating it. Uh, and then they wind up being Wilsonians, right? And they support these people like, you know, Lippmann and Crawley, and they wind up supporting the Wilsonian project, uh, hook, line, and sinker. They buy it, right? They're all in. And then they suddenly see, as Randolph Bourne sort of said, scales fall from their eyes because they see what the, the, the wartime state could become, this, you know, hyper-patriotic, propagandizing, uh, you know, modern bureaucracy that, that really kind of in Jamesian terms kind of was like a juggernaut car running over people, right? Um, and as in, you know, one example, back to the flu, we're living in a pandemic now, Wilson never once publicly talked about the flu, right? Uh, this purported progressive who cared about people and reform, right, doesn't, doesn't make those kinds of moves, uh, you know, and, and the, that's the wartime context. And that's, that's some of the ways in which you can see the ruptures in progressivism in that era, real progressive intellectuals buying into the war, and then the kind of collapse there at the end. And that, I think that fits with what war Morgan was talking about in terms of the beginning part of that, that sort of the set of trends that you see moving over time, has and have nots, that question gets sublimated to the state and kind of existential crisis in a war and the possibility, this really alluring possibility of transforming the world, right? Making the world safe for democracy, building lots of democracies in other places, casting off monarchy. Uh, and then having been seduced by that, a lot of these intellectuals then in the 20s are, you know, step back and they become major cultural critics or H.L. Mencken types, right? They're, they're throwing bombs at a lot of elements of American society after that, having realized that they bought into a project that they really should have found antithetical to the kind of ideals that they believed in. 
Well, Du Bois too. I mean, Du Bois eventually comes to support the war. So it, it's it's incredible. You're right. The the intellectual thought that kind of coalesces on that moment. And um, for me, I think I also and I want I really wonder what you guys think about this in terms of interdisciplinarity because. One of the things that we do is we have a set of sources that we tend to go to as historians, they, they, they're usually in archives, but interdisciplinarity offers so much for this period. And I mentioned a little, I mean, we're talking about Twain, so literature is the obviously the go-to thing. And I know that uh, other people are talking about business and capitalism. There's a, there's, a, there's a bunch of really fascinating interdisciplinary avenues to follow in this, in this era. I'll just share with you mine, but I'd love to hear what you think would be really exciting avenues. I am I'm, I, I totally nerd out on the efficiency movement and on standardization, industrial standardization, like bolts. You know, how many threads are going to be on a bolt or like, you know, what actually defines whiskey as a thing? Um, I, no one else finds that exciting. I could read thousands of pages of like testimony from uh, from people in those industries about why you need to have one third of an inch bolt you know, sizes or whatever. Uh, what What is it for you that you think are some really exciting avenues that we can, you know, delve a little deeper into this period via different disciplines? Well, well I'll, I'll, I'll tackle a couple. Um, so one dimension that I think is really fascinating, and maybe this is also like you, Mike, nerding out, uh, is legal questions. Um, I think there's been a lot on law in the progressive era, the role of jurists, uh, in the rise of international law, uh, one of the things that fascinated me when I first started studying it, and then there's been some essays, and there's a chapter in Frank Ninkovich's book on Global Dawn on this international copyright law, um, which is fascinating in this period. And the really short uh, version of one takeaway uh, is that Americans in the late 19th century are, are really um, insecure. And so they don't think that they're producing much of that much value, and they kind of want to pirate what other people are doing. And then all of a sudden, by the end of the period, they want to secure their copyrights. Uh, people are reading American things out in the world. Uh, they want those patents to be protected. And so there's a real shift there uh, in that era in assertions of copyright law and the way that the way that it operates in a global and in a national context, which I think is really fascinating. I mean, for me, teaching the period, I love doing the art. Uh, love doing political cartoons. You know, you can unpack them in so many different ways. Um, and again, this also taps into this insecurity. You know, one of the abiding questions in literary like journals and newspapers in the era is, you know, is there anything great in American art and uh, literature? Uh, you know, and the, the, they tried out their Henry Jameses and they try to make these claims to James Fenimore Cooper, you know, being like these fantastic, you know, uh, writers. But, but the reality is Americans really think that they're second or third rate producers of culture in the in the early part of this period. All right. Well, I, this is not exactly new, but um, one of the books that I teach is Amusing the Million, uh, James Casson's book on um, uh, um, basically on Coney Island uh, during this period. And it's this short little book, but it really gets my students going. And we really start talking about the power of leisure and this new notion that people, including working class people, actually have time and a little discretionary income and what you do with that and and how that is spent and um you know the, the rise of uh, professional baseball and i mean i think this is something that really gets people excited interested and it does what i think all of us really want it gets you thinking about your own use of uh, leisure time energy your discretionary income where does that go what does it mean today that um you know computer games are you know outselling movies um you know you know just all these these kinds of questions so i think i would like to see um, more done on um, on this, and certainly there's been plenty done on 
plays, literature, um, and and not the not the high literature, but the popular literature. You know what what are people you know you know buying buying to read? You know that kind of stuff. So I think um, I'd like to see more on 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 leisure and and its its importance, not just the high culture, but but much more in popular culture. I have a thought here, Mike, on the on the nomenclature of the era too, and interdisciplinarity. So one thing that's been frustrating for those of us involved with the Society for Historians for the Gilded Age and Progressive Era, and Nancy can speak to this as president of the society, um, is that so many scholars, historians, don't uh, identify with the period, right? Their work may significantly overlap with the period. They may be making cutting edge innovations in, in, the, in the scholarship of the era, but in fact, they, they see themselves primarily as 19th century historians or civil war historians or you know, uh, people who work on race or indigenous uh, folks or women and gender studies, pick your example, right? Any subfield. Um, so there's that. And then there's an added dimension in inter interdisciplinary work, which is that, you know, most other fields don't periodize this era this way, right? So modernist studies and literature extends much farther and, and begins later. Uh, you know, for one example, you know, American studies folks have tended to follow, used to follow and tend to follow historic historical periodization. But I, in my view, they no longer do. And so Gilded Age and Progressive Era means a lot less in American studies, for instance. And that's pretty closely allied of a field. Philosophy doesn't periodize this way. Right. You know, um, uh, religious studies doesn't even consider this sort of periodization. This is too short of a, a temporal period. So, again, we can go down a lot of this. Uh, but, you know, in terms of interdisciplinary work, then interdisciplinary work, then how do we we um, talk, you know, how do we have conversations about a similar era when other scholars aren't periodizing even close, remotely close to this? Uh, and then you think about all the other kind of um, dissimilarities in the ways in which we study periods, where we think about whether we use theory, you know, what are our texts and core examples and that sort of thing. So I think that presents a lot of challenges. There's a lot of great uh, constructive frictions that can come out of interdisciplinary work, but it is a little bit hard, uh, in, in my view, for us to, to, to be in conversation because of how differently we think about the period itself or, or don't. I think that's, that's really, you really put your finger on something. And I think one of the things that I've been thrilled about is uh, we have two excellent co-editors of our co-editors of our journal, and they are really working to override this and, you know, reaching out to people saying, hey, you know, I see you do this work in Native American history or, you know, cultural studies or whatever it is. And, you know, you, you may not realize it, but you are, you know, a scholar of the Gilded Age and Progressive Era and let us highlight your work. And, you know, that, you know, it will really help to us to expand the message of our journal and, and, our, and our period. So, but again, that's pretty, that's still pretty wonky. We're still talking to to, to scholars. And, and, and I think, you know, and, and I, don't, I don't know how else you're going to get over this huge problem that Chris um, is describing, but I think that that's at least um, one of the efforts that, that I see going on that is, gives me some, some, some hope. Well, not to be funny, but my hope is that the podcast goes some way to bringing disciplines together and bringing people to the Society for Historians of the Gilded Age and Progressive Era and reading the journal of the Gilded Age and Progressive Era. So I don't often have a call to action at the end of these shows, but I think one of the things I would ask listeners to do is check out the journal, check out the society, because if you are listening to the show and you've made it all the way through this 50 minutes of conversation on what is a sort of inside ball um, topic, I think you would find the society and the journal of great interest. Well, that's all we have time for. Thanks for listening. You can follow the Gilded Age and Progressive Era on Twitter, 
or on my website, michaelpatrickcullinane.com. Please consider subscribing or reviewing the podcast wherever you listen because it really makes a big difference and helps direct others to the show. I hope you'll join me again for the next episode. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.